Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Fink. He's been a Ninja Tune mainstay for nearly two decades, but even if you're familiar with his work, you'll likely be surprised by just how many roles this guy has assumed in the music industry over the years. This wide-ranging chat with our staff writer Carlos Hawthorne touches on the music he made with Amy Winehouse, his connection with Will Saul, and his long-running fascination with nightclubs and dance music. Interspersed with those stories, you'll find plenty of the wisdom and hard truths he's accumulated over his years in music. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Think up next on The Exchange. start by asking you about your song yesterday was hard on all of us which was recently featured in Selma the Hollywood film about Martin Luther King Jr's March in 1965 yeah, great honour I mean for those who haven't seen the film it was it appears towards the end and it's set to real life footage of King on the march I mean what was it like when you watched that scene back for the first time yeah it was really epic actually I mean I didn't actually see the movie when it came out because I was touring and Ava who's the director of the movie sent me a link a super do you know what I mean? It wasn't like go to Pirate Bay. It was like, you know, here's like a triple encrypted Mission Impossible link to watch. But it, it, it you know, <clears throat> disappeared after a week and I was in like, you know, Hungary or whatever. I didn't see it. So I was kind of gutted about that. But she told me about the scene in advance and she was just like, you know, it's this moment where we've, we cut for the first time in the movie out of the movie into, into footage. And then you get that, you get that little slot. And I was just like, dude, I just can't believe that I can't believe we're getting that slot over over. I mean, Aretha or you know, or whoever. I mean, dude, really. Well, once you really like the song, and me and Ava are kind of mates, and um, I gave her this orchestra record that we did a few years ago, as just for listening purposes, because it was unsinkable, because it's all live. You know, you don't ever sync live records generally, just for listening purposes. And it just happened to be, I think, at the moment she was starting to do the screenplay for the movie or something. It was just in her car when she was thinking about it. So I think I just got under her skin and there was no way out after that. And yeah, I actually saw the movie a few a few months ago at home and, and, and I really, really liked it. And 
you know, it's a bit like, I don't know, industry or whatever, but my good friend John Legend, he's he's next on the movie. He did Glory, the, the end credits. He, won he got an award. Oscar for it, yeah. So, and I know he'll, he'll love that because he's got a lot of awards, but an Oscar, it's one that everybody secretly wants. And the only way to get it is an original... A, an original piece for a movie, that's it. The, an original composition for a movie. So yesterday came out one of my albums, so it doesn't count, obviously. But he wrote Glory with Common and, and, got, and got the nod on the Oscar, which is great. So, yeah, it was lovely vibe, man. You know, sometimes with publishing in my world, the TV stuff is like business to business. Pitching companies pitch your stuff to TV shows and there's millions of TV shows and they all need the same song 40 times a year. Redemption, Hope, Loss. We made it, all that stuff. But the movie things, it's a totally different vibe. It's much more, who do you know? Not in a horrible way, in a in a nice way. And I, I, I know Ava, she's great. So when she got to direct Selma, it's really not the kind of movie I ever thought I'd get a license to, you know? Yeah, I was really, really super, super chuffed, very proud. And, and, and Ava's really cool. It honestly couldn't happen to a nicer, a nicer director. And she's very, very... This isn't like a, a bring in. This is like this is this is her scene, you know, for sure. She's very into that scene and 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 pushing forward the whole kind of agenda in Hollywood, the Black Hollywood agenda, in in a really good way. So I was very proud of her to get a film like this. Really, you're living in Berlin now. Yeah. Have you moved there permanently? Mm. I don't know. How long have you been there? Been there for a year. Is that the first time you've lived there? First time I lived there. Not the first time I've been there, obviously, over the years, but it's on everybody's wish list, isn't it, for a couple of years, moved to Berlin. I went there to work with another artist a couple of years ago, an artist called Emika, and it was winter, and she had a cool apartment in the east, and I was there for like a week, day in, day out with Em, and, um, you know, just just actually thought, wow, it's actually doable to live here. I do love it here. I had an opportunity, I had to move somewhere, and I thought... Why not? So I moved there with two guitars and two bags. And I really, 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 really love it. I think it's a bit like Los Angeles in as much as you never think you're going to live there forever. It's a city for young people. It's a city of, it's an energetic, wide awake, 24 hour city. So when you love that, you'll love it. But just like kind of other cities, it, you know, sometimes all of that fun and all of that awesomeness Maybe when your life needs something else, you'll probably move away, you know? I mean, are you someone who still likes to spend their Friday nights on the dance floor? No, never. Always hated that. Always hated dancing. DJs can't dance, we all know that. You know, the DJ's always working, that's what we say, right? So, you know, yeah, DJs who DJed from birth never learn how to dance. When did you start DJing? Oh, I DJed at, eight, at college when I was 18, yeah. Was that at Leeds? Yeah, in Leeds, yeah. And coming from Bristol, club culture, loved it, big part of it. DJing was quite an avant-garde thing to do at the time. It wasn't something that you can advertise Nestle with. It was, it was, my parents didn't understand what I was doing, kind of. It was very avant-garde. And there wasn't necessarily a career in it back then. I remember when I first saw Sasha play in this club in Leeds. I think it was up your Ronson or something. All of us who were there were like, he got paid. He got paid a thousand pounds to play. And he was like the first superstar DJ that we'd ever heard of. So you get a thousand pounds for doing a DJ gig. That's 
unheard of. So that, that was the early 90s you were in Leeds? It was a bit long ago, yeah, it was quite long ago. I mean, that was a particularly um, exciting time for dance music in that city at that time. Yeah, definitely. Leeds has changed, man. I mean, Leeds now, my, my mum and dad are up there a couple of months ago and they, they took some pictures for me. They were just like, wow, it's all shiny. It's all glass and steel now. Well, the great thing about pre-internet dance culture is the fact that every local area had its own scene. That was how you stayed connected. It really was flyers in record shops kind of thing, holding the scene together instead of a uh, resident advisor telling you what's happening in Paris tonight. You had to go to the record store in Paris to know what was happening and get a flyer. So it it meant that every scene was had its own um, very unique flavour and any flavours that were brought in from other cities were because someone had gone there or a DJ had gone there or played there and been like, oh, you know what's cool about the Paris scene or the Vienna scene or whatever it is? It was all the, uh, it's because they'd been there. So Leeds had its own very distinctive flavour. Um, it was just as confused as everybody else at that time um, when it came to dance music. You had lots of different clubs catering to lots of different clubbers. Some of them wanted gurney, hardcore, techno, full on, and were looking at the at the European dance scene for their hard, fast stuff. Other clubs like Hard Times were trying to invent the kind of ooh, sexy clubbing thing, you know? And other clubs like um, Orbit were trying to do the whole kind of like underground, anything could happen thing. And it's you kind of, you didn't really know what you were gonna get when you went clubbing. And, 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 and because there wasn't such a thing as like superstar DJs at the time, yeah, it was just, it had its very, 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 very it had its own flavor. It was very hard, it was very honest, as Northerners are. Very hard, very Northern. And they were very proud of their own scene. And, they didn't like Londoners coming up and DJing and stuff like that. Were you there for the first Back to Basics <clears throat> parties? Yeah, probably, yeah. I reckon I probably was around that time, 1991. Back to Basics always had the, always had these great flyers um, of this kind of fallen angel kind of idea. It was a really good time to be at college. I mean, it was it was awesome. And it wasn't a drug thing at all. It really was just a kind of... Every weekend, you were still in the zone where a, a single record could change the whole scene kind of thing. I'm sure it's still the case, but uh, I'm not so deeply in anymore. But, you know, from my, from memory, you know, you you might go to a club and hear a record that completely redefined what you thought dance music was. It could happen any moment. And and people making the records, they didn't really have any idea of, that they were doing that. It just would spark a kind of thing like that beat would be the thing or that snare or or that reference or or something like that. Or I mean, I remember when sub came in, sub bass, and it was only really allowed to be born because the rigs were getting bigger and the sound and the clubs were getting better and the sound systems, they were thinking about it. It wasn't just like a stack of speakers at one end of the club. It was like, it was a thing. And then, and then all of a sudden you had this sub bass, you had a whole new frequency to play with. And then I, my, my, my read on all that was that definitely came out of Berlin and New York, but I could be wrong about that. But all of a sudden there were these Berlin, there was these German records coming out of Frankfurt and Berlin and Hamburg that if you listen to them on your on headphones, you heard a whole another layer of sub, which you hadn't really didn't really know what that was for. And then you go to a club and you'd, you'd hear the sub and be like, "There's a whole bass line I didn't even know about." So yeah, it was good times, man. It was fun going up north and clubbing. And you were DJing in clubs? No, not at that point. It was promoting. We, we brought a lot of DJs over. It was part. I was part of the trip up thing by then, and I went to a lot of clubs promoted some nights for students and stuff like that 
did rent parties. Uh, I was part of this Rare Groove thing, Rare Groove revival thing. I was big, big, really into that. And because you could still go charity shopping and dig, you go digging, buy buy old, old funk and jazz Rare Groove records, and then um, and then DJ rent parties where you do a party in your in your kitchen and and pay your rent with it. I was around that time that you first got involved with Ninja Tune. Yeah, after college. Yeah, yeah. How did that come about? I sent him a demo, old school style. Sent him a tape. It's wicked, and 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 it's so it's so fucking ninja that they actually listen to the tapes, you know, and they want they did this series called the One Track Mind series. They they had loads of demos coming in from people, and on the demos was one good track, you know, and they were getting really frustrated at having to pass because they couldn't put two good tracks up together. So they did this One Track Mind series, and and I was lucky to get. We were lucky. I was in a band at college. We were lucky to get one track on there a drum and bass track sampling a big Barry White track and um, so we were part of the One Track Mind series and and then I managed to spin that into a into an album deal which was great which gave me a reason to a reason to buy equipment buy samplers and and, and think about I didn't want to make a drum and bass album because I just thought that that kind of thing didn't exist I still really don't think it does but or at least I haven't got one oh well maybe I have that's an interesting question drum and bass album Goldie, timeless. Goldie, okay, there you go, timeless. Well, we, absolutely. When we were co- when we were at college, that came out. That's a great answer. Uh, give me another one. Now you've got me. I mean, it was all about the labels rather than the album, wasn't it? Really, because timeless. I bought two copies of timeless because I thought this is this is a classic. And listen to it now; it, it almost isn't drum and bass. It's almost more breakbeat than drum and bass. And it was more like labels. You know, labels would do label comps, like metalheads would do a label comp or. V would do a label comp, and that was the album format for drum and bass. At home, I got this Ram Records drum and bass album. It's like five pieces of vinyl, you know, and it's like a box. But yeah, drum and bass, I didn't think it was an album thing. I didn't think it was a future thing either. You know, I kept trying to make it, but I, I really lacked the skills to make drum and bass. Is about is actually a very minimal. Well, I suppose it depends what side of the drum and bass scene you're into, but. Uh, the drum and bass I like is all very restrained, very minimal, much like minimal house, much like minimal tech. It's like, it's what you don't do that is almost half the gig. But that's got to be deliberately not doing it, not just not doing it because you're just not very good. There is a massive difference between space left deliberately by a genius and space left by someone that hasn't really got any ideas. And, and But yeah. I got into Ninja through that and I managed to spin it into a deal and then I made a trip-up record. After college, you worked for various record labels, is that right? Yeah, I did, yeah. That must have given you good um, insight into the industry. That's exactly why I did it. I knew how the dance world did it. You get some guys in Croydon, smoke loads of skunk, make a record, give us the dat, we'll press the vinyl, get it in the vans, stick it in the shops, you sell 2,000 copies, you press some more, you do it again. It's so easy, it was brilliant. It was like... It was like business punk because, you know, the punks were great. Punk punk changed loads of rules in, in the business because, one, the majors didn't get it, so they missed it, and, two, it was a totally DIY scene. Their own magazines, their own uh, record labels, their own all their own music, you know, like the Pistols famously stole all their equipment from another band one night, you know. It was real, really punk was punk. And... The early dance scene, it felt the same, as in it was labels was popping up all over the p- place because the whole generation realised it was 
it was dead easy to start a record label. To start a record label, all you had to do was make a record. And then you're a record label. Like, no one knew how the business worked or how to register with PPL or whatever, you know, all, the, all that stuff. And obviously, none of them had a clue. And, and they all learned as they went along. And the survivors learned, like Ninja Tune, like Warp. Like they, they, every time they hit a problem, they would work out the fix and be like, that's how Universal do that. Or, you know, or, the, or like, we don't need a lawyer. And then eventually it's like, shit, man, now we understand why Universal have a whole floor of lawyers. It's like, I knew how the dance scene operated. It was all about shops, mags, you know, that cute chicken, whatever record shop recommending you buy that 12 kind of stuff. It was real basic stuff. But I really did want to know what happened on the other side behind the doors how did the doors do it how did how come branson's got an airline you know there must be money in there i mean obviously i know why mariah carey sold a lot of copies of all i want for christmas you know i get that but but how do you actually do it so my speciality at the time was underground music and so i learned that whole side of things and at the end of the day the one lesson i took out from that whole time in the underground all came from one record that I did the work on. It was this Lauren Hill record called Miseducation. And that didn't come out of nowhere. She was already the lead singer of the biggest band on the planet with the Fuji. So that wasn't like a, oh my God, who's this new chick? Everyone knew who Lauren Hill was. But the record was so good for the moment in time that it well, didn't need to be hyped. I didn't need to do anything. As a plugger, I just had to send it. I had a box of vinyl of her first single, Lost Ones, from America, 25 copies. And obviously I kept a copy because, you know, and my boy Semtex, who I was working with, obviously he grabbed a few for the street team and the pirate guys. But I sent out 10 copies of that record. And from that one 12-inch, I got, like, Kiss FM A-list, Choice FM A-list, Radio 1 A-list. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It was just proof because the record was awesome. It was just total proof that... The music industry is still that honest, I think. Uh, if, a, if a record is that good, then you kind of don't really need to do much. It just works itself. Much in the same way with Amy Winehouse's second album, Back to Black. You don't need to plug it. Just just play it. So, uh, so I learned loads of lessons, including stuff I kind of thought I already knew, which was an amazing record will sell a million copies. And I still, I still totally believe in that. You mentioned Amy Winehouse there. When did you first meet her? A really good friend of mine, George, was an A&R intern for uh, a record label called S2, who were famous for Terence Trent Darby and Jamiroquai and a few others. And George was interning for a kind of A&R genius called Lincoln, who was a real A&R legend. And George knew Amy and knew the voice and, and Amy needed beats. And George was like, oh, I know a guy who works at, who signed to Ninja, he makes beats. And, and literally, that's how it started. She came over, we made some beats, we listened to a lot of D'Angelo, a lot of Lauren Hill, a lot of that new soul scene at the time, Jaguar Wright and Jill Scott. And Amy was all about that at the time, really all about D'Angelo. And so we'd take Voodoo, we'd take tracks from Voodoo, the, the, the D record from 99, and loop the intro and she'd sing over the top of it and stuff like that to do her early demos. It was cool. We worked together all summer, it was, it was really cool. Is that when you recorded Half Time? Yep. Exactly, yeah. Having that come out posthumously must have been. <sighs> well, listen, dude, the truth of the matter is, you know, I didn't give permission for it to come out. And 
me and Amy made a deal as friends and I promised I'd never let any of it out. And then I was on tour on the bus and I heard they were doing a posthumous Amy Winehouse record. And I thought, what a crap, what a disgusting idea that is. And I look at the track listing and there's my track on it. At which point, ring up my manager and sort of say, dude, I'm in Vienna or Frankfurt, wherever the hell I am. I've just seen this thing, could be a thing. What's the deal? He calls them up and they, they didn't even check if there was a co-writer on it. In fact, I think Salam Remy said he co-wrote it. They're probably just, because it's so old, it's from like 2004 or something. You know, I'm, not, I'm not blaming Salam at all, but he probably just thought, yeah, I did loads of them. Yeah, did loads of them, probably one of mine. But um, I'm not the head of Ireland and I'm not the parents. So And, and it all goes to charity apparently and good for the, good for them but i know i i wasn't i wasn't overjoyed at that at all i was perfectly happy to be the guy who who never worked with amy according to history because nothing ever came out i was just part i was just there we made like there's another five of those in my hard drive they're never going anywhere like we made a deal me and amy that i would never let them out and it was a, and, and i i was determined to be one of the few friends that she had that never used her as a cash machine like for real and I was just about to introduce her to uh, D'Angelo when she passed away, which is a real shame because I know she would have loved that hookup big time. And then I'd have been like, sweet, golden. But So you stayed in touch? A little, a little bit. It was very difficult to stay in touch with Amy unless you were in her very immediate vortex of madness. You know, I, I didn't like Frank as much as she didn't like Frank, but Back to Black felt like a great fit. And, and it was it was really, for everyone that was in her social circle at the time, it was great when she put Back to Black out because it was like exactly, that's the kind of record you could always have made. But the first one was a bit UK pop. For example, the, the cover of Frank, the first Amy Winehouse album, has got Amy Winehouse on the cover with a little dog wearing a pink dress. You kind of go, wow. That so isn't Amy Winehouse, and exactly now we know Amy Winehouse is the tattooed beehive train wreck. And of course, we all knew that in spades. We knew it wasn't a good Frank wasn't a good fit, but it had just enough juice in it. I think she got nominated for a Mercury out of it as well. So it had just enough juice to let her do what she wanted on the second one. And and Ronnie did a mega job of producing that second record. I mean, he really nailed it, like totally nailed it. Um, and again, you know, Salam Remy's done some amazing records. So Frank, you know, was his, was a good job. But back to but Ronnie really nailed Back to Black, you know. I read she was one of the inspirations behind you kind of making that switch over to becoming a sing, singer-songwriter. Most definitely, for sure. You know, you work with a singer and who doesn't look like Cheryl Cole and but has a voice that compensates. And, and, and you kind of cross your fingers that it's like, if this doesn't work out there, then maybe I'm going to lose a little bit of faith in the whole music thing if this doesn't work. You know, if Amy Winehouse... At the time, it was Amy Winehouse versus Joss Stone in a celebrity soul match, and it was like, Joss Stone, I, I see how that works, and Amy's not that, you know. So, but if that, if Amy Winehouse didn't didn't work, we'd have, we'd have, a lot of us would have felt like quitting, you know what I mean? It's just not worth playing the game anymore if it's that rigged. So it was, it, was, it was really inspiring that she would come into my studio in, in London, just a bedroom studio, and record a few vocals, write a few songs, sing a few bits and pieces, we'd do some beats, and then by the end of the day, we had a song. 
it wasn't a mystical black science, smoke and mirrors, and only a few people have this, only Lennon and McCartney have the magic. It was as easy as what rhymes with time, you know? That's when all the doors opened for me, because it was like songwriting is just simply about writing a damn song, you know? And if someone like Amy Winehouse sings it, it sounds awesome. And how long was the process, the kind of transition? Oh, it took ages, man. It took ages from Fresh Produce in 2000, Trip Hop Record, to Biscuits for Breakfast, Singer Songwriter Record in 2006. I mean, six years between albums. That's a long time. I mean, you're, you're learning a whole craft there. It's a whole new thing, yeah, totally. And also, I wasn't sure what I was doing. I wasn't sure if it was the right thing. But I got, I dance music was beginning to really piss me off because it was just so transient and everything moved so fast. And I was just getting tired of keeping up with the nowness of it all, you know? It's like I used to take real pride in spending 20% of my DJ fees on records to play on that night. So I'd see what gigs I had in the diary and I'd spend accordingly what I had for the gigs, you know? And we all had this kind of unwritten rule at the time that, you know, we were all on the same mailing list. We were all on Zolt and Waxworks and I don't know who they are now, but, you know, we were all on the same mailing list with all the record companies. So your set couldn't, Every time you played a record that was sent to you by somebody, every other DJ would know that you got sent that because they got sent that too. So it was about giving your set 80%, 90% not plugged records. So you had to go to Black Market. You had to go to Uptown. You had to go to, like, well, Phonica when it first opened. You know, you'd, 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 you'd be crawling around these record shops to find that 90% that the other guy didn't have. And it was really cool. But I was just getting exhausted from the whole... The whole now thing, the whole now vibe. After after ten years of the of that, I was just knackered. You know, it's relentless. You know, you know that. And it's it's a young man's thing. It's like the whole kind of like thinking a track. Like, and when I was a DJ at the very peak of what I was doing, if I heard a track in my set anywhere else on radio or club, I would never play it again. It was considered too commercial. Anything. Even if I was playing at a nightclub with another super trendy DJ who was mega cool, if he played a track that I had, it was I'd throw it away. It was gone, and 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 that's just just relentless, man. I used to love going to Soho on a Saturday, and just digging and trawling and spending loads of money on twelves and getting them home and being like, you know, seven out of ten of them would be like awesome, and three would three would be like, yeah, it sounded way better in the store kind of stuff. I used to love that, and then one day I just kind of didn't love it anymore. I just saw it as a real pain and also clubbing was in a really weird spot in 2002 and 2003 and 2004 no one we couldn't tell what was going to happen next we'd had breakbeat we'd had drum and bass we'd had techno and house we'd had all the hybrids of all of those mixed in with all of the other you know we'd had, we'd had, we'd had the orgy of of genres and we were just like i just couldn't see what was going to happen next if i was writing a book about my view of it all, it would be like, well, minimal happened. Well, Berlin happened next. They, in a way, Berlin and New York kind of went, actually, we're going to go back to basics. It's all about drugs and 4-4 and let's get, let's get on with it. And minimal's a bit of a dirty word these days, but it needed, it needed a reset. Everything needed a reset. It was just, there were so many genres, it was just getting ridiculous. And, and in a way, dance music had splintered into black and white in a lot of ways, especially in London between like two-step and garage and what's the difference between garage and house I mean and so on and so on and so on and it was it was just getting a bit random and a bit rampant I just had to I had to move on were you playing quite across the board 
as a DJ? Well, I was representing for Ninja the dance side of things, and I was representing the urban side of London as much as it was relevant to a Ninja Tune crowd at the time. Because I was working for in the urban scene for the majors, so I had so I would trawl Soho every Friday afternoon for professional reasons, which was awesome. And I'd go to Uptown, I'd go to Black Market, I'd go to Wild West, I'd go to all the stores. So I so I'd get that I'd get one three eight Trek by Zinc the the minute it hit Black Market shelves, and and I'd get the weird two step grimy garage stuff that was relevant. It wasn't too it wasn't too bumpy. But this one was more grimy. That would suit the ninjas. Or I'll get that drum and bass track that's... It's almost like stuff... I would represent almost a more soulful side of ninja in the clubs without literally playing soul. So I could include a bit of trip-hop, a bit of drum and bass, all these hip-hop instrumentals I could get my hands on. I was really into two-step. I was into anything new and exciting and, and edgy and bassy. So, yeah, that's what I would go for. And you were booked as a ninja tune DJ. Yeah, a lot of pressure in those days on that. Because like I say, man, it was a bit of a... Well, nobody was quite sure where we were all going. Like, honestly, in 2002, if you'd have said to me in 2012 there'll be no nightclubs left, I'd have been like, that's an option. You know, maybe this is it. Maybe we've all... We've hit the wall now. Who's going to listen to the same shit in 12 years' time? How wrong we were. But I just got the feeling that live music was next, not clubbing. And I th that wasn't a... That isn't true, like, in the big picture... That was just true for my personal microcosm. It was like, I'm getting into live music. I want to know how live music works now. I've learned how the music industry works. So I kind of got into that. And that became my journey. And surprise, surprise, I became a live musician sort of five years later. Biscuits for Breakfast was your first record as a singer-songwriter. It was also the label's first record. I mean, were they open-minded to that change? Yeah, they wanted it. They definitely wanted to put out a singer-songwriter record. They just didn't want to sign a singer-songwriter. Because it was very bandwagony, you know, at the time. But because I was already signed, it kind of bypassed the whole, this is just a fashion exercise to sell records, which they were very grateful for. And it was their idea to make it all vocal. I, I wanted it to be a hybrid. Like, a, I was really into Zero Seven and Groove Armada and Lemon Jelly and all that, all that stuff at the time. So, And they were doing production records with guest singers on it. And I thought, that's cool. I'll do that. I'll do a hybrid. But Ninja were like, no, there's no half measures. You either, it's all or nothing. And by the way, we don't want another instrumental record, so <laughs> so it's all, basically. It must have been quite a nerve-wracking time putting that out. Well, I don't know whether it was nerve-wracking. Well, it was anything that's new is, is interesting, right, and exciting. And, I mean, for you to be... I mean, you get nervous before you do a gig in the, in the early days, but you don't get nervous whether or not you're going to sell a million records or not, or, or may even make a living out of it. And if you're used to the judgment of being a DJ and stepping up to a club on a Saturday night in front of 2,000 people and they're all expecting you to give them a, the greatest night of their life, then you're, you're already used to pressure, judgment. Because sometimes you don't, you know what I mean? And then you've got to walk out and get the plane home and be like, damn, that sucked, didn't it? You know, I, or you read the crowd wrong, or you bring the wrong, in, in those days, you bring the wrong crate, you bring the wrong records with you. Remember I did this one gig in Tel Aviv, and... I had a crate of records, and I was playing everything, and nothing was nothing was working, nothing was touching, nothing was hitting. And I was like, dude, I'm bombing, I'm bombing, this is terrible. And then I rolled out the um, drum and bass, which was right at the back, as a just-in-case, like Circles, Adam F., this always works. Played it, 
place went nuts and then I'm in the drum and bass trap. How much have I got? I had about 25 minutes of drum and bass. I reckon maybe five twelves in there. Thank God. Otherwise I would have, it would have been a horror. It would have been bombage. So yeah, I was used to the pressure and I was definitely used to the judgment, you know, and being a singer songwriter, I was just very pleasantly surprised to put it mildly that we got, we got booked, we got gigs, we got a bit of radio, we got just enough to get the ball rolling. We did the gigs, we did the sessions, you know, we, we wanted it, you know, we really did. And, um, and we, we still want it just as bad now, it's just on a, on a different level, but really it was, um, I guess the only thing I was nervous about, I guess, would be everyone's gonna say that it's totally shit and that's the end <laughs> of your music career because you've tried doing the instrumental thing and you've tried doing the singer thing, so I guess you're gonna be a record label owner or a marketing dude or I don't know, find another way, you know? But you you never really think like that, otherwise you wouldn't make the record in the first place, in a way. What did you take from being a DJ and producer through to being a live musician? That's a very good question. I took the hypnotic element of dance music, which is which is a thing. This um, this hypnosis is part of its secret weapon. That's why we like. Uh, and that's why the beats that have become the beats that we know as just dance beats are the way they are. It's because of this kind of linear hypnotic effect that a good 4-4 will have on you, you know? And and the BPMs that, that that we play with these days, 120 to 130, is some. Um, there's a reason it's not 170 or 60. It's like that's perfect for this drug at this time, for this thing. And So, yeah, that linear thing, the fact that the public, if you like, like us... We're perfectly happy to listen to two minutes of one thing if it's totally awesome, and it's recognizing that and and having and being having the courage to do exactly that. Like Radio Slave is a great example of that. His stuff is way minimal. Like it really is. Not much happens on a Radio Slave track, but everything that does happen, you really want it to happen. It happens at exactly the right time. That hi hat lush. That ride sweet. That kick. <laughs> Just right, you know, all, all the elements, it's it's perfect. It's like, I don't need to do more than this. It's it's just the right amount. And so I try and bring a lot of that to the table. I know that as a singer-songwriter, the, the, it's all about the song first, and then you can like dress it up however you like. And and it's the same with dance music. It's all about the rhythm first, and then you can, you can or, or rather the environment within which this is will, will be enjoyed. So first of all, you know, if you want to write a track that's going to rock Bergheim to the ground, it would help if you went to Bergheim a few times. You know what I mean? You can't like sit at home with with Ableton in isolation, read a couple of read a resident advisor for a few months, and then make that track unless you're just totally lucky. If you go to Bergheim, you'll hear what they listen to. If you still want to make a track that r takes Bergheim out, then at least you know what you're doing. So, the the linearness, the hypnotic quality, but I also got that from other bands that I love, especially the psychedelic guys, the, the Floyds and the Joni Mitchells and the John Martins, and the, the, they, they love setting up a vibe and they're happy to let to get the vibe in there, you're in the vibe and they're not gonna they're not gonna drop the ball on you and throw any curveballs in there. So I, I, I dance music and it's still what I really do love about electronic music is that it gives me something that I can only get from electronic music. It's some kind of cleanliness some kind of purity of idea, some kind of 
and I get all the references because I've been around long enough to know what they're referencing and you know what I mean and 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 just so I love it when when an electronica that, that word's probably not very cool around here anymore is it well an electronic track happens because when it does happen to you you listen to it over I listen to it over and over again it's it's the purity of it all that I really really like and I love what Tom York's done with it too I think he's been really inspiring over the past couple of years um, did you find the two worlds very different? Yeah, they're totally different. They're completely different. They're nothing like each other. They don't mix. They don't get on. And both sides have no idea. Like when I tell other bands what DJs earn, they're amazed. You know, they're dumbfounded. You can earn two and a half grand for two hours with a couple of USB sticks. I was absolutely gobsmacked when... I came out of retirement kind of last year because I moved to Berlin, obviously. So within two months, I was playing at Watergate and <laughs> under a different name with one of my mates. And I said to him, I'm going to need a sound check, bro, because I haven't used CDJs. And like, you know, dude, I haven't used CDJs since Fabric Room 3 in 2000-something or other. And he's like, dude, honestly, you don't need a sound check, bro. Honestly, you just, just bring the USB key, you know, rock up would be easy. Honestly, CDJs, no problem. And I was really freaking out about it. And I'm like, dude, I'm definitely going to need a sound check, man. I mean, dude... So we went before the DJ dinner and the CDJs worked the BPM out for you. Dude. So I'm like, all right. I mean, right. I definitely don't need a sound check. And, and my dance guys, my, my, my indie guys, my indie friends, my band friends, yeah, they, they, they don't realise. But they also don't realise it's not, it's not it's, it never has been and it isn't now as simple as just play loads of dance tunes that you think are really great. That's not how it goes. Every every scene has its own rules, regulations, and you cross the lines at your peril. Sometimes it's cool to do it, and people are like, oh, that's what makes, you know, whoever better than whoever else. But, you know, you cross the line in the wrong direction and you lose them, that's bad. I mean, to lose a full club at peak time in Berlin, it's dead, dead easy. Because sometimes you might be playing there and you think no one's actually listening to any of this shit anyway. <laughs> well, then drop that tune, drop a tune that goes wrong, and you 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 realize people leave, they're gone. You know, don't break it up. Like, don't break up the four four. Maybe if they're not into vocals, don't drop a vocal track. But maybe they are into that one track with vocals, like that Bob Moses track. They like that, but they're gonna hate that other one with vocals in it. That is kind of like that one, but for some reason it hasn't got the same special source or whatever it is. Are you talking from experience there? I'm talking from experience of being in the clubs and 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 witnessing this because I love going to clubs to listen to the music. I'm not the guy on the dance floor, definitely not. I'm definitely the guy behind the DJ because he's probably an old mate of mine. Really enjoying the fact that I've got a club PA and the monitors, so I've got the best sound in the house. It's like listening to an awesome record collection of modern stuff on a massive sound system, so with free beers. So I'm that guy, but I love listening to music at that volume. And you can't, you have to listen to dance music in that context. I think a lot of the times. I mean, you get like John Hopkins albums, for example, and all of a sudden you've got a dance album you can listen to at home. That's nice. It's kind of rare that that happens. Uh, but I've only ever heard immunity. I've only ever heard a John Hopkins track played once in a, in a club in Berlin. Even though everyone in that club's got the record, and all the DJs know who he is, but it, it's it's a club record for home use, you know. So, no, I I love going to clubs and seeing which tracks work and which tracks don't, and it does tap right back into that original reason why me and all my other electronic friends started to do it, 
which was you'd go to a club, you'd hear loads of records, you get totally inspired, you think, oh, I could do that, and you go home and you do it. And then you realise, I can't do that. Why not? It's just... with Why can't... Why is Radio Slave infinitely better than me at doing that? But it's just the thing. It's just the fact. I mean, the same year you released Biscuits for Breakfast, you also set up House Music with Will Storm. Sure, yeah. I mean, have you and Will been friends for a long time? Yeah, we've been friends for ages. Not really friends anymore, unfortunately. We had a big fallout last year. But we, we met at, we met Ed when he first came out of college in the music business and we were mates for like, uh, yeah, for like as soon as, he, as soon as he hit the industry. We used to DJ together at um, Marketplace and he set up Simple Records. We did all the early Simple Sounds, mix CDs. In fact, Amy Winehouse did a drop for us, actually, funnily enough. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really nice. It was, a, it was a different vibe from the hardcore, intense Ninja Tune thing, where, especially when you DJed in Europe in the 90s, the, the promoters would just put Ninja Tune on the flyer. It didn't matter that no, no one had ever heard of you. It would guarantee the club would be full and everyone would be there. And then, and it's up to you to be better than all the locals, and and that's quite a lot of pressure sometimes. We go play in Budapest or something random, and it's got think Ninja Tune on the flyer, and you know the club's full because of Ninja Tune, not because of you. So, and everyone's waiting to see you do a three deck something, Cirque du Soleil or something, and it's like okay, it, it was it was like a game every night. In fact, all of us felt so we felt the pressure of being on Ninja Tune that it meant something. The label meant something. So. If if your name was on a flyer, it just means that you're doing the gig. But if Ninja Tune was on the flyer, which it always was in brackets after your name, you were representing all the other guys on Ninja, from whether it was Bonobo or Food or Strictly or or or, or, or Cold Cut or whatever. It was like the the label will Ninja Tune also had one of the first ever forums on their website, which was the first website for a record company ever made because they're really techie at ninja the ninja forum was like the healthiest music forum for a couple of years before everyone caught up with this so if you did a crap set in paris that night it would be on the forum the next day it was like the first example of instant grat media and and so we were all really paranoid about it because not only was it a great thing to see people's reactions, or but when you got home, you could just go to the Ninja Forum and see if anyone was talking about your set. But if, if you if you played a duff mix, they'd say, oh, yeah, the set was really good, but halfway through you mixed a really bad this into that. And you'd be like, oh, God, everybody noticed that. I thought they might have got away with it. Oh, no. It was so intense. So moving into moving into the game with Will, it was just wonderful. He, 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 had, he, was, he was one of the reasons I quit DJing, to be perfectly honest, because I played a fabric night with him and a DJ called Jesse Rose in room, I think we were in room three I'm not sure but I was playing a sideshow a little alter ego to avoid all the pressure of Ninja and to DJ with Will and and him and Jesse just played a perfect inch perfect every hi-hat in the, in the pocket bit of CD bit of vinyl all over the mixer you know all over the all over the faders and the squelches and the, and the, and the algorithms they were all over this mixing desk and I was just using the fader. They wouldn't even use the fader. It was just a whole new skill set. And I'd witnessed it a few times, but I'd never actually stood behind it and just kind of gone, you know what, that's just, I can't, I can't do that. I've been DJing for years and I can't do that. There'll be a few hi-hats out <laughs> in my vinyl on vinyl set. And it just made me realize, all right, now it's time to just butt out and let, let the kids 
the kids from Paris coming up from behind. Let them, let them just do it. Let them take over. It feels like Will has always been the face of house music. Was that sure. always? Was that always? This is uh, label man. He, he's, he's done all the work. So you're not involved with it anymore. No, we we started. He started simple, which was like bangers, club bangers, you know. And we set up house in order to release albums and alternative projects. So simple was the home for Will's bangers, you know, and house was the home for like the Lee Jones album, his old friend of mine, a sideshow album, which was my side thing. And the weirder, weirder stuff. And just over naturally over time, Alice just became more interesting to be with than Simple. Eventually so much so that Alice got a bigger reputation than Simple because originally the website was Simple Records and there was a little Alice logo, but it was it became pretty apparent that Alice was definitely generating more interest than Simple. So Simple, I think, slowly sort of backed away from the decks and... And then and through Will's A&R, which was relentlessly on point, he put out loads of records by loads of people that ended up being, you know, people that you'd know, you know. And he did great by that because that, that's the secret to a record company is putting out records. It just is. The more you put out, the more of a record company you are. And, and he was just, Will was just determined to release music, just keep doing it. I mean, he wanted a vehicle for his own music too, sure, but he actually loved all the whole A&R side of things, and he was really natural at it, he was real natural at it. So, yeah, Aus, it started as an alternative to, to dance music, but then became dance music, if you know what I mean. Was Sideshow a way for you to keep playing, to kind of reconnect with dance music? Yeah, it definitely was. And a way to de decompress from the whole pressure of uh, being, a, being a, a, a singer song, of being a live act. Because that can be quite pressurised sometimes, especially in the writing process. Because you don't release a track every two weeks. You release one album every two years or something. It's a big deal. Those ten tracks have got a lot of pressure on them. So we'd, we'd often be in the studio and, and, and a nice way of releasing the pressure would be I want to make some sideshow stuff, which was this 4-4, but with a dub, Flav, but I've got a band I can play with. So all the beats are live and all the bass lines are live and... I can do some guitar stuff and I can gives me an excuse to muck about upstairs in my studio and put loads of delays on stuff and 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 I honestly thought nobody noticed like really nobody noticed I mean didn't sell any records and <laughs> didn't get any radio and only got press in Europe so I really just thought it's just a vanity project but the weirdest thing is that talking to people now and I've put out this now we're putting out this horizontalism record it seems like a lot of people actually did notice it which is a bit of a bizarre one because nobody bought it but but then mixing dub with techno is always a, was never going to be a sales winner. We knew that, and Will knew that too, I think. I mean, he liked it. He likes everything he puts out for sure, but he just he wanted Aus to be albums. He wanted albums, and it's not easy to do dance albums. I'm, I'm still a very vocal um, opponent of, the, of, of a dance album. I, I still think it's the wrong format for dance music. I mean, even... Like the best dance album I've heard, apart from John Hopkins, which is really good, but that's not really, I don't know, I'd call that more, well, it's EDM, isn't it? There you go. But <laughs> I mean, even Scuba, who I think has put the most coherent dance albums out in ages on, on Hot Flush, is his new set, you know? Even that at times struggles for a second to be an album. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's like eight really good tracks on there, but is it like an album album? Or would you be just as happy with this music if you'd bought it as four... Four twelves, or even just downloaded 
8 out of 30 from the Scuba catalogue. I mean, I still think the album format in dance music, it's a bit, it's a bit like dance music or electronic, the electronic music scene is so modern, why are they beholden to a format that's 65, 70 years old? I just don't get it. It's like, but dance music's supposed to be pressed at 45 anyway. You don't have albums that are pressed at 45 unless you do double albums. You know what I mean? It, it's almost like why chase that dra- why chase the dragon like that for dance guys? Because you're not supposed to be thinking about an album. You're just supposed to be thinking about the next awesome track you make. Yeah, I suppose it's if if the album is kind of expressly aimed at the dance floor, then it becomes a bit complicated. I mean, you can you can make dance you can make electronic music albums. That sure, definitely. But you know, a dance floor album. I mean, if you made ten dance floor bangers, then um, you probably wouldn't even be thinking about an album after the after the onslaught after that. You only need a couple, and you and you you know. And you're on Resident Advisor and you're on number one and Beatport and so on and so on. And then that thing starts happening, but not on albums. You know, I mean, no one goes to Beatport and goes to the album section. They go to the genre and, and the whatever, you know, they, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, I'm convinced it's not the format for dance music. I mean, you know, dance music, though, electronic music. Absolutely. Aphex Twin is an album artist. Square Push is an album artist. His new album's crazy, by the way. Really mind blowing. Um. Yeah, it's awesome for electronic music. And I think that's what made Immunity such a big record. He 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 really uh he really trod the line like perfectly. You know, Open Eye Signal is a really cool dance track. And the video is amazing. And there's but there's loads of moments on, on, on the record which which allow you to listen to it at home. If they were all pumping, banging tracks like that, it, it would be a tough listen, but they're not, so it's it kinda works. I I think a lot of artists really like grind themselves on 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 the rocks of of I I need to do an album because they see themselves as musicians but in a way they they they're there's something else not less than a musician or not as good as a musician but whatever they are they're like I like I when I worked with Emika when I was friends with Emika she's like a sound architect you know she's like a sound designer who works in the field of dance music I really, I definitely get that. Uh, I like that idea much more than I'm a musician. Because a, mu- a musician could mean like a flute player or a cellist. I mean, it'd be hard to even describe, you know, Sean Ryder as a musician. I mean, he's, he's Sean Ryder, you know? I, I think it's, it's a trap. Like, if you're living on the vanguard, on the cutting edge of technology, and on the cutting edge of what music even means then there's no reason to say I'm a musician. You can make up a job title, you know. It's it's like, because a lot of dance music isn't music. It's more like syncopated moments that, that you can buy on, you can buy from your music, from whatever online portal you like, instantaneously. It's not, it's not Mozart. It's not, you know, it's almost like dance music has invented a new genre of what you put in your ears. And you can't really call it music, in a way. I mean, Acid House is just beats and good Acid House. It's just 909, 808, and a 303. And can you really say that that's like music? I mean, the minute you put like a chord over the top, you're like, ah, I see, it's musical. But it's like, 
I, w I wonder what Kraftwerk would say about their own music, whether they would say, we make music. I, I don't know if they... I don't know if they would. I mean, it's all music, surely. Well, is, I mean, is it, though? Let me put it into context of something else. Let me put it into the context of athletics, right? The athletics is, is what, that's like sport, right? So darts players are athletes, are they? You know, snooker players, are they athletes? Not really. They're sportsmen because it's a competition. And, but it's very difficult to compare, you know, Usain Bolt with Rocket Ronnie. You know, they're both awesome at what they do. And they're both theoretically sportsmen. But it's music because you listen, because you absorb it through your ear holes. That's why it's music, you know? It, the, it's, you, do, you know what I, do you know what I mean? This is getting philosophical. Well, it is getting philosophical, <laughs> but I think dance music could do with a bit of fucking thought about itself because sometimes it's so brainless. You mentioned Horizontalism, which is a new album. I think it's definitely not a typical Fink record. It's not, no. Tell me a bit about the album. And the idea behind it. Well, I always wanted to do a remix record. I loved horror. I loved Massive Attack's No Protection record with Mad Professor. I thought that was really awesome, and it gave me, uh, gave me another record that I loved. Protection gave me Protection twice, which was I loved that. And I love records from the past, like KLF's Chill Out and Old Mixmaster Morris stuff. And I love the ambient scene from the from the uh, late '80s, The Orb, and people like that, big time, because I was there. But I also love uh, the, the abstract guys of Brian Eno albums and, you know, all that stuff. I really do. And so when we did this Hard Believer album, which was kind of an indie, indie folk blues thing, I had loads of parts left over from the session guys who, who sessioned all the electronica elements for me that sounded really awesome. And I just... Bands like M83 have also opened the gateway for me again to like massive, sprawling, epic... It's like a journey, isn't it, dance music? Like, it's why you can't sort of just dip in and out of it because there's a reason why that snare sound is cool right now and because everybody's been on this journey. You're in the scene every week in, week out, so you know all these tiny little movements that lead to why that's cool this week. You can't just disappear for five years and come back and make dance music like you used to because you're not necessarily going to understand the journey that's gone. Will, Will explain that to me, Will saw. Because I was frustrated that I didn't, I, 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 I didn't know why this Aus 12-inch was... He played me a new 12-inch, and I was, dude, I, dude, this is just bollocks. I just don't get it. And he was, and he was just like, well, that's because, you know, but it's, a, it's all part of this journey. There's a reason why this is cool this week, and you don't get it because you're not here. You're not part of the game. But, yeah, horizontalism is like... I always wanted to do a remix album and I had some awesome parts and I'm really getting into ambient stuff. And I started to do some remixes for hard, for this Hard Believer record and they were just coming out super ambient and I was cool with it. And being cool with it meant that I must be wanting to make an ambient record. So I really embraced it. I mean, I'm in Berlin as well, which kind of helps. And the view out of my studio is just desolation and abandoned old factories and graffiti. And, you know, it kind of suits a modern, a sort of dystopian ambient thing. And uh, there's a couple of original tracks on there, a couple of original songs that are, uh, are kind of inspired by my experiences of being in Berlin. So I'd definitely say it was my Berlin record. I mean, your music, I think, is, is very emotional. True. Um, is it challenging trying to convey that same emotion through electronic music? Yeah, I think it really is. Really, I really think it is. I mean, are you trying to convey that same emotion? I'm trying to convey something. Not the same emotion, no, 
because it comes with a whole different set of baggage. Um, music without a song on it comes with a totally different sort of end game. Uh, I like I, it's got to be emotional though. All dance music, the good stuff is has an emotion. You don't, but you can't necessarily analyze why or what it makes you feel because there isn't a lyric going. You feel really sad now, and you go, "Oh, this track makes me feel really sad." But it's something, right? A beat combination with a stab combination or something, it makes you feel something. And but I definitely wanted it to be an emotional journey for sure. And I've got some. There's lots of chords and lots of music on on my Hard Believer album, so it was, I was able to use the parts to get different emotions out of the same stuff. And and the the main thing is there's no singing on the remixes. So they're all remixes, and, and I've muted all the vocals pretty much, give or take the odd little bit and piece. So some tracks were impossible because they're just vocals and guitar on the album, so I can't remix that. And there's no parts, so that one didn't make it. And there are a few that didn't make it because they just weren't very good. I thought they were really good when I did them, but the next morning they turned out to be a complete waste of a weekend. But there's a couple of original songs on there that I fall into the light, the lead single. I love that song. And it's, it's, I went to Panorama Bar for the first time, went to Bergheim for the first time. A friend of mine got me in, who's DJing in upstairs. Uh, some of my local friends told me when a good time to go would be uh, out on the weekend, Sunday afternoon is always a good spot. It's late, late on Sunday for the locals. And um, I had an amazing time in there. No, no drugs, nothing. Didn't, honestly, this sounds so cliched, but didn't need him. Just a couple of beers and Panorama Bar was enough. I left Panorama Bar, had, didn't have any idea what time of day it was, what time of night, it hadn't had any idea how long I'd been in there. I just had a really immersive experience. I love the fact there's no cameras. I love the fact there's no phones, no photos. I love the fact that the door policy's extraordinarily tight. So even if you're on the guest list, there's no guarantee. If there's enough beardy dudes in there already, you're not getting in, you know? You won't find an English stag do going on in there. It's not going to happen. First time I tried to go, I couldn't get in because of a jumper I was wearing. It was fucking stupid. But but then again, I was pissed off, but I was happy that there was still a club that would just turn you away because they didn't like your jumper. And I just thought, man, this is that's kind of cool. I don't know. Bergheim's one of the greatest nightclubs in the world. I think it is the greatest club in the world for dance music. And... My experiences in Panorama Bar and, and in Berghain have been both extraordinarily challenging, like personally, but also given me loads of faith in dance music. And I've seen, I've seen sets upstairs in the Panorama Bar where I've, just, I've gone, this, I feel like I used to. I really love that set. The DJ moved from this and had a little journey involved and the crowd are up for the journey. They're not up, they don't need... Like, they want a really nice meal. They don't want just Mars bar, Mars bar, Mars bar. You know, they want like a... They're going to be there for six hours, so you've got six hours, so don't rush. You know, it's not about massive dropouts and big kick-ins and everybody knows what's coming. It's... it's. I mean, Nick Hopner's an amazing DJ and he'll give you a, he'll give you a beautiful, linear, deep... But it won't just be stuff from now. It'll be stuff 10 years old, but you wouldn't know. I mean, it's, I just love the guys who play there, so... Yeah, Fall Into The Light is all about that experience as you just fall into the club, let yourself enjoy it. No judgment. The record's coming out on Recouped, is that yeah. how you say it? Yeah. Which is kind of like your own it subsidiary is. on yeah. Ninja Tune. Yeah. I think up until now it's mostly been your own records, but the idea is to kind of cultivate different artists. 
Well, I, when I delivered the Hard Believer album, the latest one, it was just too un-Ninja Tune for Ninja Tune to put it out. But we all wanted to keep keep rolling together, but we just couldn't. It was just you can't put Fink, you can't put this Hard Believer record out on the same label that's going to put Actress out the next month. It just doesn't make any sense anymore. And and then none of us could argue with that logic. You know what I mean? And 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 so it was either I I go sign to somebody else, which I didn't want to do. Or we come up with an arrangement, and and I've had loads of record labels in my past. I really didn't want another one, but then I I got this nice feeling that now's a good time. I now's a I wouldn't mind having my own label again. So yeah, me and my manager we, we run it together, and right now it's all it, it's it's a way of us keeping our relationship with a wonderful label that we love without going through any bullshit, which is lovely. And we bypass the A&R, which is great, because we don't have to worry about whether it's Ninja Tune enough to be on Ninja. And it's not very soulful or jazzy anymore, so that was the only thing they were clinging to with the previous records. We were already definitely not... We already stuck out pretty badly, but in a a way that Bonobo doesn't. Bonobo's still got one foot firmly in the electronic world on the dance floor, so that that means it still makes sense, even though he can have singers and moments and different try different things. But Fink just went too far. So this latest record was like a rock record, and Ninja were like, "Yes, we can't do it." So recouped, yeah. So far, it's just me and stuff that I'm doing, but it's also an avenue for anyone in the band to do whatever they want and put it out. And it's and we're looking and developing and and and, and looking to sign bands that we think are relevant. And we've got a war chest to do it. But it's what? just about finding the right people. Why do you think you've stuck with Ninja Tune for so long? Because I think you want um you want in a, in a in an industry which is just so where the personnel turntable is so intensely it's bewildering. It's absolutely glorious to be mates with my CEO because I've the, the same guy that I signed to in ninety seven is still the CEO. I mean, I can talk to Peter. He's been talking me down from throwing my toys out of the pram for like 15, for like, I don't know, almost 20 years. I love that guy. You know, look, if, if, if you can't sell records and you're signed to Ninja Tune, you know, the problem isn't the record company, it's you. You know what I mean? And, and I like that. I like that. And if, if I said to Ninja, this record is the best record that you've ever heard in your life, it's going to win eight Grammys and sell a million copies. If they believed it would, they'd go for it. If they were like, you know what, dude, it totally will. Let's, fuck, let's mortgage the building. They totally would for any of their artists. If Bonobo delivered a record tomorrow that was as good as the White Album, Ninja would sell the office to make that happen. They really would. They, they, it's like there's a lot of loyalty and a lot of love. And, you know, it's. I, I wish all my friends that were signed to labels had, had what I had. Um, I mean, sometimes I, I wish I had their car or their house or their studio because their advance from that record company or the other was jaw dropping but then I also know they'll, they'll never see another check so I hope they hope they spent that wisely Ninja Tune is like about low advances so you make profit and you get your profit which is great but if you don't sell any records you don't get any profit but why are you in this game anyway you know you're in, if you're in it for the profit you should sign to Universal you should make a record like Disclosure and do it and do a label deal with, uh, with, with you know Poly Warner Uni Sony door you know it doesn't matter if you're in it for the money you're definitely on the in the wrong spot but in a, in a really weird roundabout way the minute you don't care about making money will be the minute you start making it and the minute you don't care about whether or not you get a radio playlist will be the exact moment you make a record that gets it and 
it's just like being the minute when you're single, the minute when you're single, when you actually go, you know what? I'm actually cool with being single. I'm, I'm actually quite happy to be single. That night you'll meet a girl. It's mental, but it's so true. And it's definitely true with money. The minute you don't care, money can buy you loads of things, but like real happiness. I suppose if, if being super rich makes you really happy, then there you, money can buy you if happiness. If a yellow Ferrari makes you really happy and you buy one, lucky you. I'm glad. Lucky you that you're so simple. I wish I was that simple. I really do. But I remember when I started being a singer-songwriter, I was so broke, so unfathomably broke, that I, I, had, to, I had to become at peace with the fact that I was poor, done. And and I was poor because I was really into music. I got a room full of records. I bought all of these. You know what I mean? That's one of the reasons I'm poor. And I've got a room full of equipment that's all out of date now and a couple of guitars. And that's another reason why I'm poor. And But I was really happy, like truly really happy because I was writing songs and singing songs and doing gigs to 100 people and they were clapping. And I was so happy with that. I was happy to be poor. I loved it. And actually, I've been happy ever since. Something about just doing it for the sake of doing it. It was kind of the point, but it was I, I, deep down, I guess it wasn't until the moment that it actually was, which was the moment when it was like, there's no money in it. No one's going to buy it. It's just about you. And if you enjoy doing it, then good for you. You're back working with Lee Jones. I am. It's Quantum Entanglement. I am, dude. I totally am. <laughs> I love that guy. Because you guys are working together on the EVA. Man, we go back like to cassettes. Right. I mean, we, we mastered a couple of tracks on our first album off cassette. Man, we go back to we go back to the Korg M1 and the Alesis D4. I mean, we're back we're back in the day. We we did our first tracks on an Atari 520. That's 520k, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Not even 520 meg. I mean, yeah, me and Lee go back way back. In fact, he kind of he definitely contributed in ruining my life because he got me into making music. So yeah, it's all his fault. And what's the what's the deal with quantum entanglement? The deal is, I did a I did a track, and for Aus, Will wasn't that into it, to be fair. So, uh, but I thought it was really cool. But Will wasn't into it, and I didn't have another track. So that's the end of that. And it was lying around for a while, and then randomly I thought, oh, you know what? I, I'll ask Lee to do a remix. I can't remember what it was for, but it was for something, and I. So I reached out to my old mate Lee, who's in Berlin, trendy DJ, all that stuff, and said, um, dude, I need a remix of this track, but there's no parts. I was on tour. I didn't have any access to my hard drive at that time. I wasn't mobile. And um, so I just sent him the track and said, um, here's a track, but I need a remix of it. And in true like dance music style, within like five minutes, it resent over the, the remix. <laughs> and it was like, um, it was an awesome cover of this track because he didn't have any parts to do it but it's very baseline driven. So he had to redo his own baseline. And we put the two together. And if you had never heard of either one, you wouldn't know which one came first. You really wouldn't. You wouldn't know which was a remix and which was the original because there's no, it was really cool. So we, and we're both in, we're both kind of geeky in it into our, into our geeky physics shit. So quantum entanglement just made total sense. Like two, two things. It's like an, an entanglement of styles, but you're never going to know which came, which side came first. So, uh, with a lot of referencing to '90s 12 inches and and um, old rave records that I've got that I really like, and nothing is sacred. 
You know, the sec our second our second single was a cover of Acid Thunder by Fast Eddie, one of the holy grails of Acid House. But you know, I don't care. Well, you know, the number of people who actually know that track is dwindling, like with age. And yet, when you hear that, you hear our version in a club in Berlin on a Saturday night, everyone's loving it. And no one knows it. No one knows that Fast Eddie put that out in you know. 1980 whatever it's only some graying old geezer would know that and I, I i wanted to reintroduce the track to a whole another generation of clubbers we did that we did another the b-side has got a baseline from an old beltram rns12 direct technogon mad because the baseline's wicked and no one's going to play technogon mad it's, it's too ravey but the baseline's brilliant and so we did that and it's kind of all about reinterpreting maybe classics. I mean, there are a few holy grails that we probably wouldn't touch. Like the other day I was mucking about in the studio on a electronic tip and I, I, I nicked the bass line from um, Babylon by uh, Meat Beat Manifesto, which goes, and I thought, yeah, I'll nick that bass line. And I realized actually that's too, that's too sacred. You can't nick that bass line. But, yeah, Quantum Entanglement. We've been talking about doing an album. He's a busy man, Lee Jones. He's got like his own album. He's got another record he's working on. He's like a, he really, he's really detailed and he's like a textural tone poet. He, he's not like, he's not just banging them out for Saturday night. And and that, that in some respects makes him so interesting as an artist, but also because he doesn't release a lot of music makes it quite frustrating because he, he plays you a lot of amazing music in a studio and you go, oh, dude, this is awesome. Oh, my God. And he'll play it in his sets and tear the roof off. But it'll never come out. In a couple of weeks' time, he'll go, oh, no, dude, it's, oh, dude I'm not happy with it. Oh, this beat's a bit, oh, it's a bit whack. And, and it'll just be gone. So kind of Lee Jones has a lot of people who think his music is really awesome, but you've kind of got to be like next to him to hear it. So, yeah, he's a great guy. He's lovely to reconnect. What's it like being back in the clubs and DJing again? It's cool in some respects. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, DJing, not, not so much. I'm not, I, I did it a bit last year as Quantum Entanglement. And we did some peak time stuff. We played ADE in Amsterdam, Studio 80. And we did some, you know, did loads of clubs in Berlin and, and stuff like that. And um, I don't know if I'm going to do any more DJing. It's, it's really nice to be in, it's really nice to go clubbing again. And, and Berlin is kind of in a way... Uh, you're spoilt for choice because it's the best place to go and see, get to go and hear a load of techno if you want, I think, probably in the world. And certainly after living all over the place, living in Berlin is the only place where I've lived where I've thought I actually want to go to a club and hear a DJ, which I hadn't actually even wanted, not even a little bit, for 10 years. And then I get to Berlin and and Lee or one of my mates will say, oh, dude, you should come down tonight. I'm playing at so-and-so. And you go down there and you kind of have a good time and... You kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. I kind of like it. Some nights are better than others. My favourite set, Sven Veit did a great set at Watergate. All vinyl, really interesting. Club was packed full of beautiful people. It was brilliant. Really killer. He played um, Open Eye Signal. The times I go to Bergheim to see a DJ that I really like, or, you know, you guys or someone has said, oh, this guy's amazing, you should check him out. Martin at, at Panorama Bar was really, really interesting. Margaret de Gas. Really, really cool, and Nick Hopner and all that lot, of amazing DJs. Yeah, I mean, there's it's, there's a difference between the 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 Saturday night, let's have a party stuff, and uh, that's really interesting. Let's stroke our beards stuff, and I guess I'm definitely in the latter. I'm not that bothered about 
you know, girls girls in free, you know, kind of clubbing. I'm, I'm, I'm much more into the kind of like, I hope I'm not the oldest guy there kind of clubbing. Like, I'm not there for any other reason. I'm there for the music, you know. And sometimes that makes you in the minority in a club. Sometimes it really does. But that, and that's cool too, you know. I mean, when I was 20, I didn't go to the club just for the music. I went for all the other stuff. But now I think it's definitely like, I love going clubbing, finding a little dark spot, preferably near the monitors of the DJ so I can hear it, hear it in decent quality, and just chilling and just listening to what they're, what they're playing. <laughs> 